Welcome to PS, the Puget Sound podcast, where we're talking with members of our campus community about their Puget Sound experiences. I'm Elena Becker, and my guest today is Dr. Matthew Boyce, Puget Sound's Vice President for Enrollment. Today, as always, the Puget Sound podcast is recorded and produced by Moonyard Studio right here in Tacoma. Here's Dr. Matt Boyce. Matt, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Couldn't be happier, actually, to be here. Well, that's mutual. I'm very happy to have you. I want to kick things off by doing just a little bit of laying some groundwork and asking you kind of right out of the gate, folks have just heard your title. You're the vice president of enrollment. What does that actually mean, practically? What What do you do in your job? It's a great question and, and get it quite a bit because it does, it means something, right? It, it, this idea of enrollment. And, and I start with that overarching concept of enrollment in institution has to do with students both becoming part of a community and then their time at, throughout their um, enrollment as we use it um, at the institution. So um, my role is to lead the offices in which we both um, go out, tell students about the 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 institution or the University of Puget Sound, and then helping them through that journey of making that choice, um, figuring out how they're going to afford it financially. And then I'm, I'm hopeful of kind of bringing people together to make sure that those students are successful because we make a lot of important decisions as students in this process early on in lives. And it's, I feel my role to help lead an effort where we're making sure that students are successful, right? They're not just enrolling or going through an admission process, which is its own complicated, scary thing, but then making sure that their time at the institution is a success. And that means a lot of different things. And, and my goal is to just make sure that they can leave here feeling like they're part of a community and they're, they're built to do the things that they want to do. And as folks kind of think about what that looks like, I would, would guess that the way most prospective students interact with any university early in the college search is not to compliment myself, but is through somebody like me, the admission counselor behind the college fair table, or maybe they meet with somebody in student financial services, or even get connected maybe to a faculty member or a current student, or how does your work sort of intersect with the Venn diagram of those people that maybe they might meet in their hometown or if they walk through the front doors of the admission office? Yeah, I'm hopeful. You know, I think what makes a place like the University of Puget Sound special is how small we are and how we can have a personalized journey. So I hope many, many students around the country meet the Elena Beckers of the world as admission counselors. I also think there are opportunities where I'll be out in the world and I get to interact with them. But my role is to help set up and find really talented individuals who can work in the admission office to, as educators, as counselors, to help students uh, make that choice and, and help them kind of through this kind of stressful period. So my interaction will oftentimes be through those professionals, but at the same time, uh, the reason I'm here, one of the many, many reasons I've chosen to be part of this community is the fact that I want to be engaged with students. I want to be a part of their process and recognize that I, as an educator, I care about what they're doing and make sure that they find their home um, most times I want it to be with us, but many times it might be other places. And, and that's part of my core value is to be with those students and the families, their support system to help them. And, and I've found as I progressed in my career that that can also just be in developing researcher 
things that have to do with more proliferation around communication than even individual uh, engagement. So I want to be able to do individual work with students because it, it's where I started. It's what I care about. But at the same time, if I can make a marked difference in the work that we do, my research is on kind of uh, opening up the holistic review process and providing some uh, better understandings, opening up kind of Pandora's box in some ways to make sure that we can all talk about it. Uh, I think that has meaning and I, and I want to bring that work to, to this community and the communities beyond it. I'm curious too about how you got to the point you just described, because of course, like most people, when you find yourself in your career, you can speak very eloquently and very passionately about why it's meaningful to you and what work you're doing. But oftentimes one of my favorite things I've heard in the last five months is somebody who said to me, a career is mostly something you have looking backwards, not forwards. Mm. How did you get into admission or enrollment or education? Was that at all on your radar when you yourself first went to college about what you might do once you finished your degree? So I love the idea of that your career is looking backwards because it's so true, right? I, I keep saying it's a journey that you go through and you kind of, you wind your way through. And, and that's absolutely been the case for me. I, I went to college wanting to be a counselor, um, a, a therapist, uh, and just some of the, my experiences led me to that. And I was a psych major from the beginning. I, I added philosophy along the way. And then I got to the end and thought, I didn't prep at all to apply to grad school in my senior year. And I realized I've got to make some decisions. Am I going to go off and get a job or do I want to do something more meaningful? And, and that's really a, a first really important intersection point for me was making a choice to volunteer through AmeriCorps and, and do teaching in an inner city school in Boston. And, and that, that was the moment for me. I, I, tell the story still all the time about the students I taught at Dorchester Youth Alternative Academy and how much I cared about them and how they still drive me to this day. That seeing educational inequity early in my career, especially as a person who has been very fortunate and been provided a fair amount of privilege to recognize that privilege and be able to make a difference. And it's really sent me down a path. I, I thought the next step was school counseling. And I went back eventually and got my degree in school counseling as in a master's degree, fell into kind of nonprofit work while I was in my master's degree and made a pivot, not just to work in the K to 12 system, but to, to work in college access which led me to realizing the problematic nature at times of the admission process and how much, um, particularly at the time, the organization I worked for was doing work to help students um, with uh, standardized testing. And so realizing kind of what inequity looked like in standardized testing and, and the work that needed to be done to provide opportunities through the admission process, which led me to want to work in admission. And then I got into admission and found a ton of other things. It's just a, such a complex and interesting world. And I've just evolved. It's over time just found things I've been passionate about uh, and kept working at it, whether it be uh, how we gather information and use that information to engage students or um, how we help make decisions at an institution. All those things have kind of led me down this path. And each step of the way, I've found something I've been excited about and glommed onto, but I always anchor back to those students in Boston because 
is what keeps me grounded, right? I, and that's why even when I say that I want to work with students and why I'm at a small institution, it's because of those students, right? I, I don't, I don't ever want to get to a place in my career where I feel like I'm going to a corporate office every day because I've done that too. And that's not me, right? I care so deeply about education here and it makes me want to find ways to open up opportunities. And I think we're doing that at the University of Puget Sound and I'm hopeful that I can be a part of something really special that we're, we're building. Because of that background, you're also in the fairly unique position of having had really substantive and varied professional experience in K-12 systems and with K-12 students and in higher education and in universities. And when folks who are interested in social change and equity talk about the role of education, often we talk about education as kind of a monolith, right? Because it is a really powerful force for intergenerational equity and for restorative justice. But I don't know that we always tease out enough whether there has to be a, a chronological or a teleological shift. Can you speak a little bit about as someone who's worked in both hemispheres, maybe to, to use that metaphor of how those two things integrate and how K-12 education and higher education either work together or don't, as the case mm. may be? Yeah, it, it, it's a great question. And um, articulate in a way I think I could never do myself. So um, thank you. I, I do think that it's important that sometimes we think of them as completely um, separate spheres, right? And because they operate so differently. And I, I believe that it's really important that we do kind of merge them in more ways. And I think within the admission space, there's a very specific convergence that we have to understand. Uh, it's why I'm so strongly driven by supporting young counselors and understanding K-12 work and inequity because it drives how you see students when they apply to college, right? I've had so many conversations with people who don't understand the problems with standardized testing or how a high school curriculum can uh, appropriately set up or not appropriately set up student success beyond that space. Even if they do really well grade-wise, they may not have all the preparation they need to do uh, success or to be successful at the college level. And, and so we have to think about them as that K-20 conception, not just this idea that we are entities that feed one another, right? So a lot of what we think about in K to 12 at times can be a build towards the college career. Um, and we're thinking, you know, and I want us to think about post-secondary success in a variety of ways and recognizing that um, maybe four-year bachelor's degrees aren't the, the starting point for everybody. Um, but it's, it's our role as educators to understand that full pathway. And, and why, you know, I have a, my PhD is in education. I focus on this idea throughout my coursework, my concentration was in higher education, but I spent a lot of time with teachers and the K to 12 systems talking about the work that they're doing on leadership at the principal level, or it's kind of the conceptions of how we're teaching math. And those kind of spaces were something so meaningful to me because I need to know those things. I need to be able to speak to teachers and to school counselors and to educators in that space to help them understand what we believe the University of Puget Sound can do for them. 
and at times what we need to adjust in order to better support those students and recognize the reciprocity of that relationship and not live in our silos or stand at the top of the hill and scream down at them about how, how they're doing their work, right? It, it's to also assume that students don't evolve and that we don't have to think differently about them. And at times, I think there's the stickiness of higher education, which is that we, have, we feel as though we have the right to tell people what is good about education at the highest level. And frankly, I don't think we know that most often. I think we have a lot of really smart people who are capable within their discipline who can really teach the heck out of these, these concepts, but they don't always understand how complicated the growth of a student's education can be at some of the uh, most complicated times of their life. And so I do think there's, and you know, I'm not unique in the space, but I think we need to have greater voices that do bring us together uh, and think about that, that um, conception of a, a longer term educational career for our students and how we help them through it. I want to ask you to expand on, well, I could ask you to expand on a lot of things that you, <laughs> sure. that you just said, but one thing in particular I want to just drill down on right away is you mentioned the idea that there there are people who don't understand what a problem with standardized testing is, why standardized testing is an issue, or folks who don't understand that, well, you could be a student with a 4.0 and you're maybe still unprepared or underprepared for college. Can you flesh out a little bit, maybe give some examples of what you mean? Because I do think in general and particularly among communities with really strong college-going cultures, it sometimes is hard to visualize what how could that be? What do you mean when you say that? Yeah, I, I think we'd start the, the simplicity of the empirical research that exists around standardized testing and how the inequities play out when you look at, at the comparison of socioeconomic status against average um, SAT or ACT scores. I mean, there's it's just very clear that those individuals who have the means and, and ability to prepare appropriately will do well on these exams and those with less means are likely to have lower scores. And it's very clear. I mean, lower means equals lower scores, high means means high scores. Um, we also know that those particular tests have some correlation to college success in the first year, but not long-term. And so we use them because, and, and no, there's good reason at its core, right? We're, we're trying to think about this as a meritocracy and that anybody who has the ability to take that test can sit down, take the test, show their ability and represent that in the college. And we can standardize it across the country. So even if your high school isn't as strong as another high school, you have this standardized test that shows. But frankly, the fact that your preparation at one high school may not be as strong at another is also going to play in. And, and oftentimes the the funding sources related to some of these schools is varied depending on, um, you know, their tax base and all the things that go into lifting, particularly public education, um, to making uh, it equitable just don't exist for everybody. And so we have to take that into context and, and consider it uh, and, and recognize even in every place there are variability in terms of um, uh, opportunity, right? So for instance, the proliferation of uh, an AP or an IB program or dual enrollment programming uh, exists for some schools and for some it's not 
a big part of their curriculum, which means that those students may not have the standardized preparation for post-secondary education that others do. It does not, and this is the biggest part of this, it does not mean that those students are less talented or less capable. And the problem with the way we handle this is to assume because a student took 10 AP courses and another took one AP course that that student's better. And that's problematic. And so we have to recognize, and this is why I, I am sort of obsessive about holistic review conceptually because we need to dig in to understand all of the context around a decision we make in admission and a, a process by which a student can represent success. Because that's the whole core of the admission process for us is to make decisions for our community relative to what we believe will be successful students for us. And, and that concept even of success has its own kind of variable representation of um, whether they come in and are part of our community, it can add to the community, add an important voice and background, um, add to the research that we're doing, uh, add to uh, just the, the, the voice that we want uh, our community to have that is representative of, of many different uh, communities. So it's really, it's a complicated endeavor because we also want to make sure that they're successful in the classroom, right? And, and at the core, we are an educational institution and we have to figure out ways when we talk about success that when they land in our classroom and they're spending money to be a part of that campus community, that they're investing in something that they feel like they can be successful in doing. Like what you hear? I'm Brittany Jackson, Assistant Director of Admission and Multicultural Admission Coordinator. If you're enjoying the Puget Sound podcast, you might want to consider taking a closer look. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic, we've developed a lot of virtual programming to help answer your questions about Puget Sound. We offer student-led snapshot tours, information sessions, one-on-one -on -one appointments, special events, and so much more. Check out the full list of offerings at pugetsound.edu slash visit. We can't wait to meet you. Implicit in the conversation we're having so far is something that I think is so important. I think doesn't get talked about enough. I'm pretty fired up to have the platform to talk about it with you. And that's the idea that the fundamental responsibility of an admission counselor or an admission office or anybody reading a college application is to that student and whether or not they can be successful in a college level setting. When you were speaking earlier about sort of what we look for in success, how we look for a student demonstrating success, demonstrating that they'll be able to be a contributor, if that's the framing then the framing is not, well, we're looking for some archetypal best type of student that has discovered a planet or, you know, won an award for their novel or done any of those other things that I think, because the admission process oftentimes is so opaque or confusing, it seems like that's what you have to do to get into college. Can you talk just a little bit about some of the landscape and framing of the college application process and what sticks out to you as maybe being different from your point of view as a, a quote unquote insider than what we hear in the public narrative about what it means to apply to and get into college? Yes, I start with the, the fact that 
we often focus on the holistic review as if it's it, it provides opportunities that don't exist. I, and I say that very frankly in the sense that we, and, and to my kind of the latter point of my prior answer is this idea that we are an educational institution and we focus on your academics first and foremost. Any good individual who's reading applications and admission professional who gets this is reading holistically. And that means that they're reading all parts of it holistically. And it's really focused on the, the academics, right? So we wanna say a great essay or great recommendation is gonna open all the doors, but frankly, that's not the truth. The truth is what you do within the opportunities afforded you, meaning what classes you're taking, how well you're doing in them is gonna matter first and foremost we have to consider the academic preparation and the thousands of hours a student is putting into their high school career in the classroom as the best understanding of their ability to come and be successful within our corridors. And so I always think, and but you sometimes we kind of throw away holistic because I talk about the transcript, but frankly, we have to be holistic within the transcript because as mentioned prior, we have situations in which High schools are different. They're different by community. They're different by state. Uh, we have to consider everything we can for that student within the community that they find themselves and what courses they were offered and what they took. So a student who's offered a full IB curriculum and takes none might have had less, has plenty of opportunity and taken very little advantage of it. Whereas a student who has two AP courses afforded to them in their high school and they've crushed both of them, that that shows quite a bit, right? And so there's context and that's part of the holistic review. Uh, it's not to dismiss the secondary pieces and I'll call them secondary because I think that's important, which are the essays and the recommendations and the interviews and the engagements we have because those things matter. They absolutely do. But I tell students all the time, you can only open the door with your academics. You can blow it wide open with the rest of it. Um, and if you're on that cusp, if you're right in the middle academically and that, you know, we're looking at all these things and you might have had some rough patches, those other pieces matter. And that's when, you know, some of the area of interest for me in research are things like non-cognitive uh, non skills. We call non-cognitive skills, which show strengths beyond um traditional cognition related items such as GPAs and coursework, such as self-efficacy and grit, these types of concepts that we've been able to start to measure that show students can be successful in spite of challenges that have been presented to them. And we are trying, I think, collectively within our profession to figure out ways that in short order to identify those things and to represent them in our decision-making. Um, that's tough though. And, and the balancing act and, and we have to be honest. And this goes back to the kind of the core for the work that I do on the academic side is we have to be honest about how much time we're spending on these decisions. And frankly, it's not as much time as it is relative to what the high school students and families put into it. And so it's always hard. You never want to tell a student we spend six minutes or seven minutes on average with your application, but that's truth, right? And so it's a matter of what can we garner in that short period that helps us understand who you are and how you can be successful. And, and I want students at times to challenge us when they need to on that. Well, and one other maybe important piece of the framing 
is so much of the public narrative around applying to college is colored by the sort of very, very small minority of hyper-selective schools. So, so much of what we hear is, you know, about a school like a Harvard or a Stanford where fewer than 5% of the students who apply are getting in. And if that's your sort of mental framing of what applying to college is like, period, then of course it feels like a zero-sum game where you were not in competition with yourself, but you're in competition with everybody else, right? How do I make myself, again, air quotes, but better than other kids at my high school, than kids across town, than kids across the country, than the other kids in the chess club, right? How do I I make myself stand out relative to them? But for the vast majority of excellent colleges, and that's maybe another good footnote that selectivity and quality are not the same thing, right? It's easy to think that because that's how capitalism works. It makes you think, right, if everybody wants one thing, that's probably the best. But in education, doesn't quite work that way. But that there are lots of really excellent schools that, as you've just described, are going to evaluate you against yourself, right? Not against the application they read right before you, not against the application they read right after you. And so when I'm reviewing applications, oftentimes, as you've said, I'm looking for, has the student cleared the the sort of first bar of she can do it, right? She has the tools she needs to be successful for this to be a good experience. And then on to, is she somebody that I see doing things in her community now that suggests to me she will also seek out opportunities and community and resources when she gets here. And that is just such a different way of thinking about it, but it's crazy to me how much the sort of public narrative and imagining is dominated by this experience that is really not representative of the landscape in any kind of significant way. Oh, I would agree. I think this is part of the a little bit of our obsession with lists and rankings, right? And, yeah. and you know, we all do it, right? How many BuzzFeed quizzes do we take to, you know, and things that we look at is, you know, that, that catch our eye. It's an easy way for us to, to consider competition. And, and we all do it a little bit. Uh, it has been something that I, I've come to, to recognize as part of the landscape is that one, we all collectively have a similar mission, which is to support students in an educational opportunity to prepare them for a better life and better opportunities beyond the, the bounds of our, our hallways. And we do it in similar ways and different ways. And for me, it's about the lens of the student and allowing the student to find the institution that works well for them. And we're all part of that. And yes, there are definitely institutions largely who have been around forever. Um, many of them from since the prior to the inception of our country um, that have uh, a foothold on competition, but recognize that there are very few students that will go there and that there are many students who will go to the thousands of other institutions around this country. And, and students really need to figure out where that is for them. And fit is a lot of things. I, I always tell students a really important part of this and some of the research I've done represents is we have to make sure that we are focusing fit in the right way. Don't let an institution tell you whether or not you fit there, you decide. Right. And that's part of your process. It's one of the things that that got me really excited as I got into the admission world um, 
was something that I just love, which is this journey that students can go on, which is it opens up a ton of doors. And you think about, especially in the United States, you can go to every corner and almost every community and be a part of a college, right? And how do you think about that journey and where you want to go? And then how do you feel like you can do that within the institution? And that's your fit, right? And you chase that. And you'll find opportunities at many places and just recognize that whether you go to one of those institutions that only admit less than 10% or you go to an institution that admits 70% of their uh, applicants, you are likely going to be successful if you take advantage of the opportunities provided to you there, right? So don't worry about, oh man, I got into this or didn't get into this place. You worry about what am I doing? Right. What is my uh, autonomy in this process to make sure that I can be successful? And, and that's why things like self-efficacy are things that I focus on, because I, I want to think about the nature of our students taking advantage of what we provide them and sometimes pushing us as institutions to do better for them. Uh, and I do I wish we could break that narrative, but it's going to remain, right, as long as kind of that concept of, as you've represented it within the frame of capitalism exists, we'll continue to combat that. I always I have a funny anecdote on this, which is I finished my um, dissertation defense, and I come from a big family, so I'm one of seven kids. All six of my siblings showed up from all corners of the country for my defense, which it blew me away. Um, I will be teary just thinking about it, but... I had a brother walk up to me afterward and tell me, I've always said to my kids, and he has three, I have two nieces and a nephew out of his family that I love dearly. And he said, I'll never let them apply to a school that admits more than 50% of their students. And he said, after listening to you talk about this work, it made me realize how problematic that perspective is and how it limits their ability to go places that they might be more successful than those more selective institutions. Because at the end of the day, it's about the students. It's not about the institution so much because we're built by those students and we're there to support them. And that's really the core of what I am always trying to help people understand and drive. And it's a really hard ask too. Maybe that's good to say, but to, to do the work when you're I mean, people go to college when they're all every age, but if you're 17 or 18, to look at yourself and try to figure out who am I? What do I want? What are my priorities? What are the types of resources I want a college or a university to have to let me make the most of it? That's not a small thing to do. No. And I think, so I mentioned I'm one of seven all, you know, so the vast majority of us have college degrees and most of us transferred school at some point. So putting pressure on, and included to me, you know, um, I transferred undergraduate institutions because those decisions are hard, but recognizing that you're, you should never feel stuck and that we can work with you and that you'll find a way to that degree but there are times where you're going to have to ask for help and you're going to have to figure out what works for you and be okay with it taking longer if it takes longer, right? Um, 
but I, I just think that there's just so much pressure put on this process that uh, I'm constantly trying to think of ways to alleviate it because it creates so much tension. And I've seen and I've worked with families individually on the process to to help them be successful. And and I've worked as an intermediary to say if I could just help with the communication between parents or guardians and the student, because there's just so much that we ask of them in the admission process, whether it be a decision on where they apply and even the, the dollars, sometimes we dismiss that $65 to apply to a college can be really cumbersome for some families, especially if you end up applying to eight schools, right? Those are hundreds of dollars you're, uh, you're going to end up putting forth. So, I, I just always want to think of ways that we take this process and make it a little bit more exciting and a little less stressful for families. Do you have any tips, especially in a year that is so weird? And I think part of the decision-making process, there's this sort of, I think, apocryphal, but this idea that, oh, you step onto a campus and you just feel it. You feel at home. You feel right even in a year where we would all be stepping onto college campuses all over the country, I kind of think that's that theory is on shaky ground. But in a year where that may or may not be possible, just what do you think, what are like the one or two things you would say to people to think about or focus on as they get decisions from colleges back and start trying to think, okay, now the ball's back in my court. Where do I want to go? Well, and I think Trying to make connections at the institutions is an important aspect. And I think stepping past the admission office, and that's not to say that the admission office is not an important part of that dialogue and making sure you have good relationships with the admission counselors and individuals who represent areas or parts of the campus that you want to engage, but engaging with faculty, recognizing that there are individuals on the campus who provide support mechanisms, start to engage beyond just that because yes, there is something that's so special and that's true about anywhere, right? You go on vacation, you have that feeling, right? And you land in a place you're like, oh, I just, I feel like I could live here forever or I always wanna come back here. I think it's similar, you know, you think about the next step in your life and you think I'm gonna spend four years here uh, and you want that, the magic, right? And and unfortunately the the situation we're, we're currently kind of enduring has taken some of that magic away. But the magic still exists in the classrooms, in the work that's happening on that campus that's going to help you be successful. So the physical place is an important aspect for residential institutions for sure. But I would just have you think a little bit beyond the kind of physical nature in recognition that we've all become a little bit more place-based in the last eight months or so in our lives where we've been focused on just kind of how do we survive within this space that we are living? Um, how do you apply some of what you've done to engage the outward world in this space? Do it in the college process. Take advantage of the different things that we're affording you in the virtual space. But I, I, I wanna also be just very honest and transparent to recognize that I'm never gonna give you a tip that's gonna solve for this. Right. I, I think that we have to acknowledge that this is going to be a harder decision. And all I would ask people to do is recognize that the college is there as, a, as an instrument to help you, that you shouldn't feel like you're making that decision in a vacuum and make sure you're getting the answers you need. And if it's time you need, there'll be time, I think, 
for many institutions and we'll afford that to you. Uh, and just keep utilizing those people in front of you and then step beyond them to those individuals within spaces you may not have um, connected with in the past. Because I think, and I know here at the University of Puget Sound, our faculty are just dying to engage our students. It's what one of the things that makes this place special uh, is just how capable and engaging our faculty are and what makes it such a unique experience for so many of our students. And oftentimes it's not until they get into their first year seminar courses that they recognize that. But I think that they can get a little of that in this time and space, especially when maybe a Zoom session is not that distance of a concept rather than walking into a classroom with a bunch of undergrads that is really terrifying for a prospective student. So I think we're just going to have to recognize, one, how difficult this is, and two, that um, we can do this together. We're just going to have to ask that you ask more questions and engage us in unique ways. Matt, we've talked a little bit about how you yourself have this really unique and, and kind of comprehensive view and experience of education as a concept and the educational system. We're hearing a lot right now about what a rough moment this is for the world, but also for education. You read the newspaper and you read about how hard it's gonna be on colleges. You read about how lots of folks with lots of education, lots of knowledge and skill are worried about the kinds of losses we might see in K-12 education, especially among rural communities, especially among families with low SES socioeconomic status or families from traditionally underserved communities. Given all of that, when you think about education right now, what makes you hopeful? What do you feel good about when you think about this moment in time for education? I think the pain of the innovation is what we're kind of enduring right now, which is to recognize that we're going to evolve and be better as a result of this. But the the, the core unfortunate is the, the, the losses we're seeing in students' time and engagement, particularly those students who struggle in this space. And there are many students who with varying abilities that this space is just not as equipped for. And they're just not as equipped for. But frankly, and you mentioned rural spaces, if we can leverage this type of technology, we can actually uplift those communities in ways we've never been able to before. And it's not that this technology, it's amazing, right? Skype as a concept existed long ago, and now we have Zoom that everybody uses. And, and it's a platform in existence for you know more than a decade, but we've suddenly become so accustomed to it and recognize that most of the technology we've developed in that time is allowed even for the simplicity of a camera inside of every computer to know that we can actually broadcast educational opportunities in ways that are impactful. Now, it's taking time, right? We can say that in almost every institution that had to pivot in spring who is residential and is focused on kind of that physical engagement struggled, right? But we then see the gains. Now we, we have faculty who are, are saying, man, I can do this. And actually I can do this well. And at times I've actually engaged students in ways that I never expected and who are more open in this environment that they were in the other kind of physical space where they might've felt some intimidation. And so 
it is the pain of innovation that we're feeling, but I do truly believe on the other side of this, educators are going to be more equipped and capable and have adjusted pedagogy to manage through this. And will say to themselves, okay, I, I would have never done this before. It's because this is, I know what I can do inside the classroom. I've got it, right? I know what it's like to engage in a room and be a part of it. And it's taken time, but now I can do this. And so let's think about students who maybe end up being ill in the future in a different world. And I'm not talking COVID world, but somebody who gets gravely ill and needs to be away from campus. Can we bring them into the classroom in ways that we may not have been willing to or capable of before? So, and also those spaces who have traditionally been underserved. Those areas we can better serve because of this, right? We don't have to be with them physically to make sure that they learn. Now it's just time, which I think we can afford to provide. And I do, I remain super hopeful that this has evolved us in ways. It's also the other piece I will say is it's made us appreciate what we had also. There's been this kind of evolution where online education has become somewhat this concept that we believe is going to overtake in-person education. Um, and there's a lot of really important positive aspects of what, and I just mentioned many of them, but we can also go back to saying, man, how great was it to be in a classroom and how different do we appreciate or how much of an appreciation do we have for it? now that we've gone through this. So I, I see that as the other kind of flip side of this is to go back to those classrooms, just super excited, right? To, to know what it's like to be in a classroom and to feel the energy that exists when you're physically, uh, you know, it coming together. Matt, we end every episode by asking everybody who comes on the same four questions. Please. First question is, where is your favorite spot on campus? My favorite spot on campus so far is the new Welcome Center. That is, uh, as I've called it this time, a present we haven't unwrapped for everybody. But it is, it is a beautiful space uh, that I know that many um, future loggers will walk through and get to know us as part of. Um, but I just, I'm, I'm, it's a marvel to me as uh, both providing a space that is unique and modern while also holding on to kind of the the charms that we've had for a, a campus that's been around for quite a while. What are you reading right now? Oh, what am I reading right now? Uh, you know, I, I would tell you um, mostly I'm reading the news and, and focused on kind of current events and trying to make it through. Uh, I'm also reading as much as I can about um, Washington legislature and the things that I don't know as somebody new, uh, as somebody that cares about how we educate students in this state and how it impacts uh, the students that, that land at our doorstep or are interested in the University of Puget Sound. So it's been a lot for six months that, that less of the pleasure reading and more of the, the learning, um, which is something that's really important to me. Where is the best place to eat in Tacoma? The best place? <laughs> Hmm. So I've, I've consumed quite a bit of sushi in Tacoma and, and I, I'm not going to name anyone because I love all of them. Now I'll give you one that's really, um, it's going to speak to my roots and it's a real random option, but there is a Philly cheesesteak place in downtown Tacoma. I believe it's called Go Philly. 
and it is good. And I will tell you, as a guy from the Philadelphia area who loves cheesesteaks and is obsessive about how they're made, it's really well done. And it was something I found early on. I landed here. I couldn't go out because of the pandemic. And I ordered and they dropped it off of my doorstep. And I thought, well, this will be something to eat. And maybe, but I, I was shocked. It was very well done. And I would say fairly authentic. So any Philly people or who have ever been to Pat's and Gino's in South Philly, they'll feel a little bit of nostalgia for that. That is extremely high praise to be mentioned in the same sentence with Pat's and Gino's. Well, yes. And I would actually, this is, this is going to be terrible, but I would, I prefer this over Pat's and Gino's. So I know, I know. Hopefully there are no Philly people out there. Although I would take over all of them gyms in Philly. So that's my preferred Philadelphia cheesesteak. Uh, fourth question, Matt, last question. Why is Puget Sound special? Well, you know, it's going to sound commonplace, but it is the people but I think it's the place that attracts the people. And so what I mean by that is it's, it's a cyclical concept. We've developed an incredible community of scholars and, and learners and researchers uh, and people who care about education and care about uplifting others and done it in one of the most unique parts of the country you can come across. And so it is that coming together and the people who become so passionate about this place that have made me so excited every day um, to be a part of the University of Puget Sound. And, and frankly, to do it in 97 acres that you will not find anywhere else near the, the water and the mountains, and to be able to know that your education is unique and special and the people who are providing that education all around you care so deeply and desperately about your success. It is really what makes us unique and something that I can't wait to tout each and every day uh, as we talk to students, because I don't think you'll find another place like it. Dr. Matthew Boyce, thank you for joining me on the Puget Sound podcast. Uh, anytime, Elena. You just asked. Thanks for listening to PS, the Puget Sound podcast. If you're interested in applying to or visiting Puget Sound, you can find out more at pugetsound.edu slash admission. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at UNIV, U-N-I-V, Puget Sound. I'm Elena Becker, and we'll see you next time for PS, the Puget Sound podcast.